Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Die Hard from 1988 with my wonderful guest, Sarah Royce. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and I have my wonderful guest, Sarah Royce. Sarah, welcome back to the show. It's an honor to be here. I am so thrilled. (laughs) I'm so happy to have you, especially for this conversation this week on the show. It is almost Christmas time, and we have selected the modern Christmas classic, Die Hard from 1988. Now, people at home, I can hear you. You're like, Sarah, I'm shocked that you would select the film Die Hard as your Christmas movie. You love White Christmas and Christmas in Connecticut. And everyone here, I'm here to tell you that it turns out, after all these years, I am a diehard fan. I didn't know I was, but I am. Um, Sarah, how did you feel after watching this film this time around? I mean, I love this movie. It has replaced uh, It's a Wonderful Life as my go-to Christmas film. Like this and While You Were Sleeping are my two Christmas movies now as an adult. They hit all the boxes. Like this one is the action, shoot 'em up big explosions movie and then while you were sleeping is the cute rom-com i used to be of the staunch opinion that die hard was not a christmas film (laughs) um i saw it in my mid-20s for the first time and i was like eh, i mean it's an action film whatever i don't care and then i think two years ago i was on an airplane and i just kind of was like you know what i feel like watching die hard why not and that's the first time i understood all of its glory and so For the last two years, on Christmas, I've watched Die Hard and I've loved it. Um, So this was only like my fourth time seeing it. But Sarah, you had said you've seen it several times. Yes. I have seen this movie so many times. I have absolutely no idea when, where, how old I was when I first saw it. No clue. It's just like one of those things that's always existed in my life. This also brings me to this point of like people at home. I am not an expert on this film. I'm probably going to get some of the quotes wrong. But like, let's be real. I'm awful at quotes anyway. In general, I remember I, I remember feelings and details, not the words of the movie. Also, I wanted to put out there that when we're talking about this film, we're talking about it as a sole entity. So I know that there is a Die Hard universe out there. We've got like Die Hard 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, Die All the Days. I don't know the last one. Go 2013's Die Hard on a life what is the last one even <laughs> no i think there's just the four there are four no right? there's the fifth one with jai courtney that came out oh, in 2013 okay. and i could not tell you what it's called to save my life so there's already people at home like turning this off like oh these ladies don't even know 
stick around. Maybe you could see another perspective and learn something. Just saying. Honestly, it should be considered a sole entity by itself anyway, because the Die Hard franchise is kind of one of diminishing returns, to be honest. Um, but yeah, we're just going to be focusing on Die Hard from 1988. So I wanted to put that out there. Um, and that's the universe we're operating within. I also like to say why I chose a film. So last year at Christmas, it was like our COVID Christmas. No one could go home. Everyone was kind of stuck in their apartments or houses. Um, and so I saw this post of Sarah's on Facebook about how, you know, a very convincing argument of why Die Hard is a Christmas film. And I had just rewatched it with the perspective of, oh my God, Die Hard is like an insanely feminist film. So my response to Sarah in this instance um, hers was really long, so I can't read hers, <laughs> but mine was shorter. I, was, I really got into it. I mean, I was at home alone for Christmas last year, so I was like, you know what? I need to do this. And that's what we're going to talk about in the show, like a segment. We're going to be like, and why? Is this a Christmas film? Sarah, take it away. Um, but what I had said to me, Die Hard is a tale of patriarchal bullshit not working out. Everyone that dies, with the exception of Mr. Takagi, R.I.P. Mr. Takagi, is part of a toxic masculine way of thinking and ego-driven behavior. John McClane's arc is that he literally learns how to communicate effectively, examine his own actions and behavior, and say, I'm sorry, by the end of the film. And he admits he should have been more supportive of his wife, and it does seem that he will be more supportive of her career and her future. He spends the whole film in a physically vulnerable and emotionally vulnerable state. It is secretly feminist, and I am here for it. To which Sarah replied, a feminist Christmas movie. Your honor, I rest my case. <laughs> so we're going to get into why it's feminist, but that was what sparked all of this. I was so into what Sarah had written about this film that I was like, and it's feminist too. Everybody wins. Um, so yes, that was sparking why we chose this. Um, and then our plot synopsis, let's just get into it. So we meet uh, NYPD officer John McClain. He has just flown to LA from New York after being estranged from his wife for six months. She got a really big job in LA working at the Takagi Corporation, or the Nakatomi Corporation, I'm sorry. So he's out here visiting her. He was kind of hoping she'd fail and she'd move back to New York, but she didn't. So he's out here to see her. He's driven to this place by Argyle in a limo, no less. And he gets to this fancy pantsy party at Nakatomi Plaza and he gets in an argument with his wife because she used her maiden name in her business and that really pissed him off. He wanted her to be McLean, Holly McLean, not Holly Gennaro, even though she like logically explains why she prefers to have her name be Gennaro, whatever. Um, so it turns out that there are quote unquote terrorists. Are they terrorists? Oh, we'll find out. I mean, they are, but w is there a deeper purpose to their terrorism? You betcha. Okay, so terrorists take over this party. They're led by Hans Gruber, as played by Alan Rickman, and I should mention that John McClane obviously is played by Bruce Willis, and Holly Gennaro slash McClane is played by Bonnie Bedelia, which is a fabulous name. So Alan Rickman takes over Nakatomi Plaza, and he's like, We're, you're all hostages. Hey, I'm Alan Rickman. I'm Hans Gruber. Uh, we need Mr. Takagi. We need to chat with this man. And so everybody's freaked out because they didn't expect to be hostages on Christmas Eve. They pull Mr. Takagi aside, but Bruce Willis, hearing the hubbub, gets away. And I should also mention at the top of the film, he has a conversation with a, uh, a business traveler 
who can tell that Bruce Willis is a little weary of planes. The only way to feel like you've really gotten home is to take off your shoes and squish your feet around on the carpet. Make fists with your toes, I believe he says. Again, forgive me yep. if I mess up your famous quotes, people. So while Bruce Willis is doing this, he's cleaning up at the party. He doesn't have a shirt on. You know, he's got his little white tank top. He's barefoot. He hears the gunshots. He does have his police officer gun and he splits. He's like, okay, I've got to stay safe so I can protect people, so I can stay alive and find out what's going on. So he does that. So while Hans Gruber has this plan of, you know, getting 640 million, what are they called? Bearer bonds? Negotiable bearer bonds. They're there to get 640 million in negotiable bearer bonds. And um, Bruce Willis becomes the quote unquote fly in their ointment. And he makes their evil plan very difficult. And he gets hold of the police. Nobody believes him. Eventually, he does get the attention of Al, as played by Reginald Val Johnson of Family Matters fame. And he and Al kind of become buddies over the walkie-talkie, and Al believes him because, you know, he throws a dead terrorist body over Al's car, so Al gets it. Oh, and, uh, you know, some fighting has ensued, and in a big fight, Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, has killed this man named Tony, who it ends up being a big deal later because Tony's brother is Carl, and uh, Carl's uh, pretty vengeful and uh, not super cool with Bruce Willis killing his brother. Over the course of events, there's like a lot of fights and a lot of figuring out what to do next. But eventually, other cops come. They like play so into like the cop playbook that everything they do is exactly what Alan Rickman needs them to do. So they're like helping out Alan Rickman by being so goddamn predictable and ego driven. Eventually, uh, because of an asshole reporter showing up at her home, um, and figuring out who John McClane's wife, Bonnie Bedelia, Holly Gennaro is. Alan Rickman figures out that Holly is John McClane's wife and that he's been talking to John McClane this whole time. And um, he takes her hostage and Bruce Willis finds out about this and he foils the plan of Alan Rickman because what Alan Rickman was going to do was steal the money and then get all the hostages on the roof and then blow up the roof. Alan Rickman pretended to be a terrorist organization and then he wanted certain terrorist demands, which included helicopters picking them up um, and escorting them away. The FBI got a hold of this and they were like, haha, we're gonna fool this very smart man. We're gonna be in the helicopters and he's not gonna get away from us. So Bruce Willis knows that they're gonna blow the roof, that it's actually just about the money, it's not about terrorism. I mean, it's about terrorizing people, but like that wasn't their main impetus. They just want the money. And um, if they kill everybody in the building, then they get away clean and no one knows that they've escaped. So that was like their main goal. Bruce Willis foils that plan. He ends up killing all of the terrorists. And there's another backstory with Al. Al was a desk jockey policeman, and he was a desk jockey policeman that just happened to be out on the streets on this particular night. Um, his wife is at home and pregnant. He's very sweet. But he killed a teenager <laughs> once on one of his first cases. So he was taken off of like the regular beat of the streets, which I think is very valid. So eventually when Carl is alive, Al kills him. But besides that, Bruce Willis kills like everybody else. And um, Alan Rickman has a very um, intense death scene where he has taken uh, Holly hostage and Bruce Willis foils him with a hidden gun taped to his back and, and shoots him and he falls out a window. But he grabs Holly's arm, her wrist, and he's going to pull them both down and maybe shoot them. But then Bruce Willis 
gets the Rolex that she got from her company off her wrist, and Hans Gruber falls in a famous falling sequence that's so super dramatic, and he thuds on the ground. And then, um, and then uh, Holly and, and John McClane get out of there, and they're going to be in love. And, uh, and, that's, and that's the end of Die Hard. Hell, I'd watch that movie. We had mentioned the debate over this being a Christmas film. Sarah, would you like to guide us through why and how this is actually a Christmas film? Um, I mean, I think that for a film to be considered a Christmas film, it really needs only two elements. The first one is that Christmas Eve and or Christmas Day has to happen at some point during the movie. Right. So like the events of this movie all take place on Christmas Eve, although it looks like because it stretches on so late, it's probably like in the early hours of Christmas Day by the time McLean and Holly drive off on the limo. And that seems to be the case pretty much across the board for any Christmas holiday movie. Um, and then the second element is the theme of love and family winning out over greed and money. Like some variation on that theme also has to be present in the movie. Because otherwise, then something like Iron Man 3, which happens around Christmas, could be considered a Christmas movie. And I don't quite think that is. I would add one more element, which is that I think Christmas has to not just be involved in the plot, but you as a viewer have to have some sort of semblance of warm, cozy at some point. And I, I weirdly feel like this does give you that. <laughs> at the end when it's like the papers are falling and you're like, it's snow and there's fire all around the building. And you're like, oh my <laughs> God, we're by a fire. Like I totally see what they did here and they're playing Let It Snow. Like I think there have to be like certain tropes of Christmas that have to be present for it to be a Christmas movie. The idea that like you are never allowed to forget what day it is. There's Christmas decorations in the lobby. There's, you know, when McLean is being driven um, in the limo to Nakatomi Plaza from the airport, they're listening to a Christmas themed rap. Like there's all kinds of characters who are singing Christmas songs. Like uh, Powell is, uh, you know, the Reginald Bell Johnson character is singing Let It Snow at one point. Uh, Bruce Willis is whistling Jingle Bells when he first arrives at Nakatomi Plaza. Like everyone, it's always, it's constant reminder. Hey, by the way, it's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. Like you are never allowed to forget what day it is. And there's also, I noticed in the score when I was rewatching it this time, the score has sleigh bells in it. Like if you've ever gone to see the a Philharmonic Orchestra perform, they've got those big racks of bells that they ring and those pop up frequently. And I also, this time, I didn't pick this up before, but this score includes a motif that sounds similar to um, walking in a winter wonderland. It's kind of played in a minor key and it's not like overt and in your face, but it's at the point where Tony, the big blonde terrorist with the big glasses, he cuts the, the phone lines at the very beginning that cut off all communication between the building and the outside world. And when he's walking to where the phone lines, all that that cabinet is in the score, very subtly in a minor key, it, it plays walking in a winter wonderland. <laughs> so yeah, there's music everywhere, um, diegetic and non-diegetic music. Diegetic music is music that you and the characters can hear. So like when Argyle pops that tape into the tape player and they're listening to music, like they can hear the song and we can hear it too. Non-diegetic is the score, pretty much. Um, you know, we hear the score, obviously, that's being played, but the, 
the characters don't hear that. A great example of that is when the musicians at the beginning, I mean, you just gave examples, but a tie-in example of that is when um, John McClane enters the plaza. And even before then, there's, you know, this is a classy party. There's a string quartet playing Joyful, Joyful, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And then throughout the rest of the score, that's a part of the score, especially when dealing with Hans Gruber. Yeah, John McTiernan wanted um, that Ode to Joy to be the, the, the terrorist's theme song. As a, as a nod to uh, A Clockwork Orange, because, you know, um, Alex DeLarge was a big fan of Ludwig van, you'd call him, right? Beethoven. So it was kind of like a nod to that, because obviously the A Clockwork Orange is super, super violent, and they love classical music and the contrast there. And so you can even hear it, the very first shot of that green truck that they drive up in, you can hear it just very, very slightly, very quietly. So right from the beginning, it's like associated with them. It's such a great use of it, but they also pay homage to A Clockwork Orange through Singing in the Rain. That's what Theo is whistling um, when he's first putting things into the computer. He's whistling yeah, oh, Singing he's, in the Rain. He's, he's hacking the computers and locking yes. up all the elevators. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which is also great because we did Singing in the Rain last week. So this ties our show into a previous episode. Hey. So that's great. But yes, okay, so you've established the components of what makes this a Christmas film. And I mean, there are several lines uh, that are funny that deal with Christmas. Um, for me, when Bruce Willis sends Tony down the elevator and he puts on his shirt, what does it say? Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Thank you. <laughs> when Alan Rickman says that, I die because he clearly doesn't know how to say an American, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do it again? You did it really good. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. It's so good. I know his delivery is so great with that line. Oh my God. And it's so out of touch. One of the downsides of a classical education. But then I was like, oh shoot, I also have a classical education. Dang, I'm just like you. No, I'm not. <laughs> when I didn't love this as a Christmas film, I think it was before Hallmark had really gone nuts, you know? So like... We didn't totally have Hallmark movies the way we did now. So now it's like you have so much of the holiday cheer, you need to offset it with something. And I think this is the perfect like antidote to that. So like if you've watched too many Hallmark movies and you're like, oh, I need a break. This is like the perfect opposite of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I bet you that's why at first I was like, I don't know about this as a Christmas film. And then later on, I was like, just no, this is perfect. <laughs> this is great. It's lovely as it is. When I was growing up, our go-to Christmas movie was It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, so many people, it's the same deal. That was one of our rituals. Every single December, we would watch It's a Wonderful Life. But then, I don't know, I hit this weird part where I like, like my life story has been a little bit like George Bailey, because um, Bedford Falls, where he lives, is modeled on Seneca Falls, New York, which is not that far from where I grew up. I also grew up in a town in Western New York. So... The idea of this guy growing up in small town, Western New York, and wanting to get out and explore and, and have adventures, like that was me too, except unlike George, I got out. So now I, I watch it with totally different eyes. And I guess maybe it wasn't hitting the spot for me anymore. And when I went looking for something else to, you know, become my Christmas movie, I, I don't know if the debate had started then already by then, like is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? I just watched it and I was like, oh yeah, this is great. This hits the spot. This is exactly what I needed to watch. And I'm not going to lie. It's not my top spot. Obviously, Christmas in Connecticut and White Christmas are my top two. But I'm the person that watches like every movie at Christmas. So it's just another thing that I can add to spice things up, you know? It's so entertaining. 
And Die Hard, for good reason, is considered one of the greatest action films ever made. And it it is. I mean, I can't elaborate any further than that. It is a well-done action film. Well, and it's credited with, like, revitalizing the genre. Because kind of before this, it was incredibly macho. Um, and it was like, I am the man. I know everything. I am never vulnerable. And I am perfection. You know, it was kind of this, like, there are no flaws here. Yeah. And so I feel like Die Hard's the first film to kind of, like, have a vulnerable lead and you're not 100% sure if he can pull it off, you know? But that's what makes it special. That's why we love it. Yeah, I mean, he he gets hurt, he gets shot, he gets punched, he gets his feet shredded to bits by glass because he's barefoot. Yeah, he, he is a real guy that we could pass walking down the street. He's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's like your smart-ass everyman. Like, you understand why he is more maybe capable of doing this because he's been clearly serving in the NYPD and this has been a part of his job. So like it makes him more qualified to do this than maybe other people would be, you know, he has certain training tools, but it's yeah, like a regular guy with only a couple of items. How can he survive this? Can he survive this? Um, And not only that, it's like, so I mentioned the feminism earlier and I read like my quote about the feminism. What I was totally struck by was like, he's removing layers as this film goes on and getting more and more uncomfortable. And it's like a physical vulnerability and an emotional vulnerability. That speech he has when he's like realizing what a jerk he's been to his wife and how she's heard him say, I love you a thousand times, but not I'm sorry. I was like, yes, please, men of America, can you take this in? I would have liked to have heard him actually apologize to his wife in the end. Like, that would have been incredibly satisfying for me as a viewer. But the fact that he can put those words together, communicate, emote, like, that's that's this film. He learns how to communicate in this movie, and it's beautiful. Made me immediately think of that line from Love Story, love is never having to say you're sorry, which is just nonsense. It sounds like it could be profound, or and it's just like, no, that's, that's nonsense. It sounds like the cool girl from Gone Girl, like that idea of like, no, I'm a cool girl. You never have to say you're sorry. Like, fuck that shit. No, yeah. you need to <laughs> apologize. You do. Like. That's the key to a healthy relationship, my God. And yeah, and the fact that he like calls out things for being macho and that that's a bad thing. Like whenever he's witnessing toxic masculine behavior, it fails miserably. Like Mm -hmm. when um, each new set of cops come in, not only is it toxic masculinity, which again is not the same thing as masculinity, hot chocolate and toxic hot chocolate are two different things, right? Masculinity and toxic masculinity are two different things. Yes. Um, So it's like when he sees like these toxic behaviors from colleagues, it's not a great thing. And the people that succeed in this are the people that don't have toxic behaviors. But like, for example, um, the FBI guys that come in, who, by the way, are named Johnson and Johnson. And I was like, oh, we have two penises who show up on the spot. Like, (laughs) that's hilarious that that their names are penises. I'm sorry, but it is. Um, So we have two penises who like glorify the Vietnam War, which is how you can tell the white guy's a dick because he's like this reminds me of saigon and you're like are you enjoy that that makes you happy what the fuck is wrong with you so you know they're fucked up but they they won't listen to anybody else they they're like no our ego tells us that we're right we're gonna do what we want to do and we're not gonna listen to anybody else they fail reginald val johnson's superior i forget his name but it's the bad guy in the breakfast club the principal you know that guy dwayne robinson thank you dwayne robinson 
he won't listen to the people below him. And there's like a race issue there too that Reginald Val Johnson even rolls his eyes at. When Reginald Val Johnson says something, when he's like, oh, they're shooting out the lights, his superior doesn't even acknowledge that he just said it, takes what he said, says it louder, and like takes credit for it. And we see Al like roll his eyes in annoyance. So it's like toxic masculinity and white supremacy go hand in hand. Mm. This black officer is not getting the respect he deserves from a white superior. I'm white superior in rank, not in human beingness. And yeah, it's like there's all these examples of like, oh, look how this toxic behavior doesn't work out for literally anybody, with the exception of Mr. Takagi, who was just like, that was a bummer when he passed away. Because you could clearly tell, Alan Rickman even says it. He's like, wow, Takagi has picked some really good people. And you're like, oh, he has. Like, he's a kind person. He has put his faith in like, lots of different kinds of people. He's elevated a woman to be the director of the corporation. Or what was her business title? Uh, so I don't remember. Well, the th interesting thing about Takagi is that, you know, in the part where, you know, Alan Rickman is going through trying to figure out where, who he is, and he's like reciting his CV almost, he mentions that Takagi was interned at Manzanar, which is crazy. That was a Japanese internment camp during World War II. It, he says like Takagi was born in 1937 in, in Japan. They immigrated to the U.S. in 39. And then, of course, two years later was Pearl Harbor. And then that's when FDR issued the orders for all Japanese and Japanese Americans to be interned in these camps. And so Manzanar was up in Inyo County, California, like way, way interior, like desert mountainous area. And they were held there for the duration of the war. And like... It's actually a, a preserved spot, Manzanar, by the National Park Service. And they have, you know, the structures were, you know, redone as they had would have looked back in the 40s. And there's monuments and, you know, it's an educational and a, a spot for reflection and all that. So, but yeah, the idea that you would, you know, experience that in your new country and then still work to, you know, like he went to American schools. He went to Stanford and Harvard and all that. He has a company that's doing really well and they're based in LA. Like the fact that you wouldn't lose faith in, in your adopted country is like, yeah, it only speaks well of Mr. Takagi, rest in peace. Yes. So just like see, you know, what you could be in a country that treated you that way, but then to also elevate people like, you know, like Holly, you know, to see what they are capable of. He treats her with so much respect and so do the rest of the staff with the exception of Ellis, who is toxic, who does die as a result of his toxicity. Just saying, it's a working theory. The other crazy thing is that like Holly's, I don't know what, she's like an executive assistant. Ginny is her name. That's the super pregnant lady who assists her. She says at one point that Ginny's due in a couple of weeks. So she's like 36, 37 weeks pregnant, let's say, still working. As recently as 1978, a woman could be fired for being pregnant. <sighs> like the, that was when the law was passed saying, you know, hey, stop doing that. It's 1978. And this movie only came out 10 years after that. So the presence of a heavily pregnant woman in a high powered office is actually speaks volumes about the company. Like they are really progressive, forward thinking. They're up and comers kind of because it sounds like they were based in New York and now they've moved out to LA because Holly had to move. You know, we know that the tower is still under construction. Some of the floors haven't been finished yet. So they're still moving into the space. They're still on their way up and everyone is going up with them, including women. But what, the thing that really struck me about seeing it, the presence of this super pregnant lady at this office also like totally destroys Holly's argument that she gives to her husband about why she has to go by 
her maiden name at work. She's like, well, it's a Japanese company and married women, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, we just saw this pregnant lady who is, you know, working at this office fine. Like, and she's not getting a hard time at all. What I took it as was it wasn't up to this part of the corporation, that they are co-partnered with people in Japan and that the people in Japan might not be okay with it. Um, that was how I was taking it. So like this portion, this sector of the business is really progressive, but there might be a more conservative side to it that is like running the other operation in Japan. I mean, I also think of the way that Holly is introduced on screen the very first time we see her is at the party. Everyone else is having a great time. She has her head buried in some computer printouts. She's still working. It is Christmas Eve. The company party is in full swing and she is still working. She is not having fun. So that combined with her super pregnant admin, like really makes her argument about going by her maiden name for me fall flat. Cause it's like, no, I mean, she's just a workaholic. Well, first of all, I want to say we also know she's a kind person from this interaction because she's like, look, Ginny, go have fun out there. Like, I don't want to be a Scrooge. It's Christmas Eve. Go have fun. So she's like dealing with Ginny in that kind way. Ellis is completely being repulsive and she's just like water off a duck's back. Like, well, you know, I'm doing my job. Ellis, get away. So <laughs> we see this as we're getting to know Holly. Um, but I also think like it shouldn't matter either way. I mean, I know you probably think this way too about what name she chooses to use at work. Like they use this as kind of a wedge between her and John, but I'm like, look, if she wants to be Gennaro at work, that's the only excuse she needs, period. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be because of any reason other than she wants it. And I, I especially, I mean, I'm personally bothered in general by the way we do naming in this country. I think it's complete nonsense that like, traditionally and patriarchally it's expected like okay i'm a woman i give up my whole identity to you the man i will take your name and also um when i have kids and i do all that physical freaking work and birth a human i don't get any credit for it and they get your name what the hell is up with that so <laughs> like yeah. i don't know i'm cool with her being holly Gennaro, and i think in this country we should take a hard damn look at why men get to have all the last name fun because it's bullshit and nonsense but yeah, I think it's like, just because she wants it, it should be, there should be no other reason that, that I just want to put my feminist two cents. In Absolutely. There. <laughs> Absolutely. And it can't, I mean, you know, they're two kids, Lucy and John, they're still little. So it, it could be that, you know, she got started in the industry under her maiden name. And so that's how she's yeah. known. Um, and also to the people at home, I like, I get it. Like people change their last names. I'm not judging you. I'm judging like the system that like forces us to do it essentially that like hasn't even examined itself and has kept up this tradition without giving anyone any options for change. So yeah, I mean, they make a big deal out of that in the movie and maybe in 1988, it would have been like, oh, Kel Horror, a woman using her maiden name. But nowadays it's not, I mean, that that's kind of just one of the small ways in which this movie is a little bit dated. I genuinely think it was so they could have that final interaction where um, there's one of the last interactions they have in the movie uh, is they finally are back together after, you know, all of the horrors of the film. They're walking out of Nakatomi Plaza, like the building, and they Bruce Willis sees Al. Across a crowded room, their eyes meet, and they know, <laughs> and they come together. <laughs> and he introduces Holly as Holly Gennaro. So for me, that moment was, look, I respect what you want. I'm respecting your wishes, Holly. I hear you. I respect you. And then when she answers Holly McLean, I think that's her saying, this is me wanting to be with you. So like, I don't even know so much that it's about like 
the name necessarily. I think it's like their way of communicating kind of, of him being like, look, you don't want to be my partner. And for her, it's like, no, it's not about that. It's about like me having respect and autonomy. So it's like the end, they use the names to show that about each other. And I could just be reading that into it, but that was how it felt watching it for me. Yeah, it's a powerful moment. It shows that they're on the same page again, especially when you go back to the first time they see each other, there's other people in the room, like Takagi and Ellis are both there. So it's like super awkward and they can't, like they have to be like, oh, hi, hi, honey. Hi, how was your flight? You know, really kind of stilted. And, but it's clear that there's still love there. They're just like kind of tiptoeing around each other because of this huge difference in opinion that they've had before the film starts with her job in LA and his in New York. Um, and him like not really wanting to accept change. It's like in the beginning, he's kind of in this toxic mindset. He kind of wants her to fail. So his life doesn't have to be upended. He's like, oh, this is inconvenient. So I'd rather have you fail than be inconvenienced. And then by the end, he has just has a change of heart of like, I should have been more supportive. This is incredible what you have here and what you've accomplished. I want to honor that. And so I think it's really cool to see that shift, especially, especially from a straight white male on screen who is deemed an action star. You know, it's nice. <laughs> also, I just will say about that one moment where you mentioned they see each other across the crowded room and it's stilted. Ellis is like the worst person to have in the room at that moment. My God, you could not have gone worse. And it also leads to that moment when she says to him, she says like, I miss you or I love you. I forget what she says. Do you remember what she says to him when they're alone together in that bathroom? Oh, when he's like toweling, you washing off the plane. He's washing off. They're like talking in that way. You talk to someone where like, I know what I want and need to say to you, but I am scared and I'm not quite ready to be vulnerable yet. So they're like, you know, when they're talking about where he's going to sleep that night and she's like, oh, well, I've got, I've got the, the spare bed, bedroom, you know, even though we've already seen her on the phone with her housekeeper, like making that arrangement, she knows the room is set ready for him to sleep there. Like she's acting like she's just thinking of it right then. Oh yeah. And I think she says the kids would love to have you. And they kind of stop and look at each other. And she's the first one to be vulnerable. She like that good face that she's had on she drops it and she's like I would love to have you there too she says I missed you she yeah. looks at him full of meaning like you were just describing and she says I missed you and his response to that is I guess you didn't miss my name though huh he's not ready to be vulnerable yet he's gonna lash out and attack because he's hurt and you see her face fall it's a great shot and then it's great because after the fact she leaves and he's like whoa why did I do that I don't mean that. Like, good work, John. Yeah, immediate immediate regret in that moment. And he acknowledges that. So it's like at least he has self-awareness enough. The fact early on that we see that he has potential to see like, okay, I didn't play that right. That wasn't, I didn't mean that. That wasn't kind. Or like he sees the communication error. Yeah, he spoke before thinking. You know, the last six months have been tough on them living on opposite coasts and he's hurt and he misses her. He probably misses her too, but he's not ready to say it. He's because he's not in that, physically and emotionally vulnerable spot yet that he won't get to until about an hour and a half into the film. Also, I do want to add to the scene where um, it was so refreshing and lovely to hear Takagi talk about Holly. <laughs> I wrote down the quote he says about her. He goes, she was made for this business. She's tough as nails. And I don't know, it was just so nice to see like a very high up CEO speak so highly of a woman in his industry and not be like gross and hitting on her and, you know, just be like an honorable human about it. That was just, I loved that moment. Takagi, fangirl for life. <laughs> but I mean, you brought up Ellis being such a slime ball. I think his whole MO is that he figures out where 
the power is like who is on an upward trajectory and then he gloms onto them to kind of like ride their coattails up so like holly we know that holly is doing a kick-ass job at work she was given a gold rolex watch as a as a gift as a, a token of appreciation from the company so ella sees that she's you know she's making stuff happen she's making it happen for herself and the company and so he's trying to get into her good books that's the same thing he does later on too with the with the terrorists when he tries to go in and talk to hans gruber and try to negotiate figure out what's going on because he sees that the terrorists are very much in control of everything that's happening so he's going to get on their good side and make sure that you know he doesn't get caught in the crosshairs or anything well and it's really telling of their personalities right away i mean takagi is complimenting holly on her work right and ellis it's not about the work it's like she got a gold rolex you know like that's the first thing we hear out of his mouth to bruce willis about holly you know it shows what those two characters value and also like the insane amount of like mediocre white boy privilege that Ellis has. <laughs> like that line about like, I'm your white knight. And like all of that, like he's such scuzz, such scum. And you know that person. That is such a person that still exists today. Like a Wall Street stock person is usually portrayed in this way of like, does a lot of coke, is a total unempathetic asshole. And that's Ellis. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a trope from all those 80s movies like uh, Wall Street and all that, the Gordon Gecko character and greed is good, all that. Not in this movie. Greed is good equals you die. Learn from die hard. See, and that ties into the Christmas theme of money, money and wealth and greed are bad and family and love are and Christmas are good. <laughs> Yay. We're going to get to this when we get to plot holes, but the watch ends up being really important. We've just mentioned it several times, the Rolex that Holly is given from work. I mean, that's what ends up freeing them in the end. Like she doesn't go down with Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber because he's holding on by her gold watch and Bruce Willis gets it off her wrist and it, it drops, you know, like that's such a symbol of like the materialism falling away. But it ties in more than we knew because originally as part of this film, something that was cut was that each of the villains had Tag Hoya watches, which is like a Swedish fancy pantsy watch. And it's different than Rolex. I was like, ooh, I wonder how that went down. Like only the good people are allowed to have Rolexes. The bad guys need a different kind of watch. So it was, there's this part where they, you know how they walk out of that van in the beginning. There was this part where uh, Alan Rickman is like, okay, everyone synchronize your watches. Um, but apparently it showed the inside of that van when they were doing the synchronize the watches shot. So they had to cut it because at the end of the film, as you'll recall, they pull the ambulance out of the van and they were like, oh no, the audience will be able to see that the ambulance isn't in the van. And they can kind of see when they walk out of the truck, but not totally, like it still potentially could be in there. So they cut the thing with the watches, but the watches ended up being a plot point thing because people, I guess, throughout the years have asked, how did um, Bruce Willis's character know so quickly when Hans Gruber was lying about being one of the hostages? And apparently it was because there's that part where he looks down when he offers him the cigarette and he sees the watch. And he had noticed that all of the bad guys had those watches and that was apparently how he knew. Oh. I think it's very obvious. No offense to Alan Rickman. I love you, but your American accent is not good. And you have a very distinctive voice. So I think it's pretty obvious that you're Hans Gruber. I had wondered about that. I had wondered, because I that was one of the things I was going to ask you, like in that scene where it's the only scene really until the end when McLean and Hans Gruber come face to face. 
but yeah, like you're watching, like Gruber pretends to be one of the party goers when the hostages that got away and, and McLean gives him a gun and they're going to like team up against the bad guys. And you're like, oh shit, no. And then when you find out that he obviously gave him an unloaded gun, cause he's not stupid. But then I wondered, like, I watched that scene a couple times. I like, you know, went back through it and I watched it again. I couldn't figure out what was it that ticked him off. So it was the Tag Hoya watch. That was part of the plot. To me, again, because he's, he has such a distinctive voice and he's clearly not American, I think. <laughs> to me, it made a lot of sense. I'm not crazy about his American accent. No, I, I mean, I am not the trained actor of the two of us, but I feel like I've, for whatever reason, I don't know, lately I've encountered a ton of British actors doing American accents and like the TV shows and movies that I've been watching. And from what I've been hearing, like almost every single one of them, as soon as they open their mouth and start talking, I'm like, oh, that person is not American. And I think it's something about like they make their vowels too bright and they hit the consonants too hard. Well, because our accent is really difficult. Like, British accents are beautiful and musical. Back when I was a theater major in college, um, when we had dialects class, because that was a class I got credit for in school, um, I had to pass it and learn a bunch of different dialects and the IPA. Um, so you learn why people have different dialects, and a lot of times it's because of the weather. And it's like the stiff upper lip is a thing, you know? You keep your mouth more vertical and more closed. And Americans, we're wide open, especially in the Midwest. You know, we got these wide A's. <laughs> like we've got, <laughs> we're not very musical. Like it's a whole different um, sound. And Australians are amazing at it because they've got a wider sound too. They, Australians are the best at all dialects, I swear. But, uh, <laughs> I, I remember specifically, I studied abroad in London, just like Sarah did. We both studied abroad in London at the same time, but we didn't know each other. But I did a, like a study abroad theater program and I saw so many plays while I was there. Um, and I remember seeing, oh no, this was a time before when I had gone to London. Oh, I sound so worldly. Anyway, um, <laughs> I saw Thoroughly Modern Millie in London because it's one of my favorite shows and I saw it there. And half the cast, which it took place in New York, by the way, it's a New York show, they couldn't do the New York accent, so they talked with Southern accents. So you had all of these <laughs> Southerners oh, in New York City doing Thoroughly Modern Millie because they couldn't quite get the accent. Um, but I don't think they should have to because I think British accents are so gorgeous that I'm like, you, please don't worry about it. You all sound great. Just leave it be. Don't worry. But yes, that's a great point. It is difficult for British people to to do um, American accents. And when they can, you're blown away by it. I don't want to sound like I'm saying no British actor can do any American accent full stop. There are obviously, yes. But I just, for whatever reason, like I said, a lot of the stuff I've been watching lately, as soon as they open their mouths, I can immediately tell that they are not American because they're doing a bad job. <laughs> I think it's a hard dialect to pick up. But that's just my opinion. So specifically, Hans Gruber says that they are after the $640 million in negotiable bear bonds that are being stored in this massive, high-tech, state-of-the-art vault in, at the top of uh, Nakatomi Plaza. Now, the fact that it's negotiable bear bonds is stupid as hell for this corporation to have because negotiable bear bonds don't have a registered owner, so they are payable to whoever has them. So they're like cash. They're valuable to whoever has them physically in their hand. And actually, they don't really exist very much anymore. They've been phased out in a lot of the first world countries because of the huge potential for fraud and money laundering. So, I mean, that I don't know if that's so much just makes it a little bit dated that they have all that this money and negotiable bearer bonds. 
So why wouldn't they just make it cash then? Was it just to sound extra fancy-pantsy by being negotiable bare bones? I can't even say it. <laughs> negotiable bare bones? Honestly, I don't know. Because like anyone who had access to the vault, anyone who had the codes or, you know, could get through those seven layers of security could just like walk off with them whenever they wanted. It doesn't make sense to have your assets in that format. So what I noticed in my brief time in Nakatomi Plaza is that it's incredibly high tech, very futuristic, right? They have these touch screens. What? Who has touch screens? They have a water feature indoors. They have several things that are like, oh, this is a high tech, classy place. So I wonder if in like the late 80s, negotiable bear bonds were just like a special thing you could have. Do you know what I mean? It's like a way of us being separated from the pack. Like we're high class or we're unique or we're different or we're you know, fill in the blank because we have these and they're special. We've definitely get the sense that this company is doing really well. I mean, they're giving their employees gold Rolexes. They've got this super fancy Christmas party. The one boardroom that they're actually the boardroom where they shoot Takagi is like super fancy. And there's all these like decorative art details on the walls. And like, it's yeah, everything about it is so tastefully done. And even when they get inside the vault, it looks like there's a, an original Degas or something just lying on the floor. Okay, so obviously this movie is very beloved. Like it has so many fans. And in this day and age, when you love something, you tear it to shreds and pick it apart and obsess over every single detail. I went down a crazy rabbit hole regarding the football game that the security guard is watching at the security station on the first floor. There are crazy essays you can find online where people like delve into this. What is this game that the security guy is watching? It's the end of the first quarter and Notre Dame is up seven, nothing over USC. It's like evening in the West coast. So this would be like a 9 PM game. Yeah. I'd be pretty late. Wait, do they have anything else about this game? Did it ever exist at all? Yeah, I mean, the, the theory is that it's audio from a game that had happened the previous season. Like this movie came out in July 1988, and it obviously must have been filmed in 87. So I think it was probably just audio recording from a 87 season game. But there is apparently something called the Thanksgiving theorem. This is a real thing I found online, guys, <laughs> where it's possible that in earlier drafts of the script, Rather than everything taking place on Christmas Eve, the movie was actually happening during Thanksgiving weekend when there are a lot of college football games. So I actually am here to disprove the Thanksgiving theorem. I'm sorry, people at home. Do it. What I read is that one of the initial ideas. So let's just get into this stuff. So this script was written by two people. It was written by this guy, Jeb Stewart, originally like he came up. Well, well, no, let's go back even further. Let's go back to the very beginning. A very good place to start. So. This was based on a novel by someone named Roderick Thorpe. He wrote a book called Nothing Lasts Forever that was the basis of this film. And he was also the writer of a book that ended up being a film called The Detective that Frank Sinatra was in. So because of a contract he had signed, <laughs> legally, the studio had to offer this role as played by Bruce Willis to Frank Sinatra first. Yeah, because both books featured a recurring character of Roderick Thorpe's called Joe Leland. And Frank Sinatra had played Joe Leland in The Detective, and therefore he had the right of first refusal to play that character in any subsequent film. So even though Frank Sinatra was in his 70s, he was exactly 70, they had to offer the role of John McClane to him first. Thankfully, 
he was self-aware enough to say no. Can you imagine if he didn't? I think I would love that movie just as much if we're being honest, though. I'll, I'll put it this way as diplomatically as I can. It would be a very different movie with Frank Sinatra playing John McClane. At 70. You do you, Frank. Okay, so that was like the first idea for it, right? It's from a book series from a time before. And uh, Roderick Thorpe really was a police officer. So he wrote these stories based on like his real police officer experiences. So that exists. Jeb Stewart wants to make us into a film. He's the original screenplay writer, and he's the one that has the idea to set it at LA at Christmas time. That's like what he wanted to put into it. And then he's the one that decided to make it a film about marital trouble. This could just be like folklore. We don't know if it's true or not, but the word on the street is that he had gotten in a fight with his wife, went out on a drive. Yeah, he was driving behind a truck that was carrying refrigerators. And it looked like a fridge fell off the back of the truck, but Luckily for him, it was just an empty box. And so he kind of like had a, you know, a near death moment where he could have like crashed directly into this fridge falling on the road. And was grateful for his wife and like went home and apologized to her. And that was like the impetus for John McClane and uh, Holly Gennaro. And he also had noticed um, a lot of conflicts among his friends, apparently, about wives using their maiden names at work. And he had been witnessing this among his friends. So he decided to like put that factor into the movie. And then I read that he wanted to name John McLean, like his last name be McLean, because it was like a good Scottish name. And he was Scottish. <laughs> I thought that was funny. He says that he's Catholic at one point because he mentions Sister Teresa would call him Mr. McLean in third grade. So I was like, oh, OK, Catholic school educated. I figured he was like an Irish Catholic kid from oh. New York. Well, the quote that I read was about Scottish. But again, here's the thing. Like, I feel like there's so much. We did this with Singing in the Rain last week. There's so much folklore online that it's so hard to tell, like, what's really true, what's not, it's all these stories. So you're like, I'm not 100% sure if this is true or not. Um, but that was what I'd read. Yeah, because in the original book, uh, Joe Leland goes to visit his daughter because his wife is dead. So yeah, the whole relationship, the main, the central relationship of the film is very different from the relationship in the book. And um, he also included the idea of like the Western references. That was also his touch. But I remember, it's been years, so please don't quote me on this. I watched the How They Made This or whatever about Die Hard several years ago before I was even into the movie. I remember them having a part about how like his script was too serious and they wanted it to be a little bit lighter and a little bit more like comedic and fun. So they wanted to insert the fun into this slightly more serious script. So that's when Steven Sousa came in and he kind of added the fun. And he was the one that was on set because they were constantly rewriting on set. Um, so he was the one that was more a part of that. So Jeb Stewart kind of did like the earlier work on it. And then um, Steven Sousa took it over. And that's kind of how we get this great blend, I think. And also because I think uh, Jeb Stewart, this was his first screenplay and he had never like written an action film before. So I think um, Sousa added a lot of the action elements and blended them with comedy. He was more um, proficient in that. Like he wrote 48 hours and that's kind of more of his specialty. Yeah. And what's ironic is that Jeb Stewart goes on to write The Fugitive, which I think is a fantastic action film that displays a lot of heart. So you can see kind of how he got there from here, you know? Absolutely. Bruce Willis kind of shadowed a couple of New York cops in preparation for the role. And he found that a lot of those guys who had been in these high octane, high tension, life or death scenarios in the course of their jobs had developed like really dark senses of humor. Like they were always cracking jokes, really, really sarcastic. And so he kind of, you know, layered that into the character as well. He's such an asshole at some points, like, and even Holly says, 
you know, only John could drive someone that crazy <laughs> when the, when the bad guys are like freaking out about something and they can see like, oh, something's going around and Holly's like, oh, it's gotta be John. John's driving them nuts. You just made me realize that everyone that kind of says a comedic comment at a dark time is a cop. So like the FBI guys, when they're in the helicopter and that one guy's like, this reminds me of Saigon, I love it. And the other guy's like, dude, I was in middle school. Like he throws a shady comment then. Um, and then when Hans Gruber's falling to his death, the other police officer who's not Al, whose name I will never Robinson. remember. Robinson. Robinson says, oh, I hope that wasn't a hostage. So like anyone that kind of lightens the mood or makes a funny joke about something is usually a cop. And it's usually a situation that is about to get dark or has been dark. <laughs> yeah. To me, what revitalized the action genre were these funny moments in this? Because I think they're such a part of culture now. Like every Marvel movie to be successful has these like little comedic moments in them. Their DNA comes from Die Hard because before Die Hard, I don't remember a lot of comedy in action films. Action films are a very serious macho guy thing until Die Hard, then they become, they know how to blend the comedy to make it a little bit lighter and a little, a little smart assier for everybody. Yeah, and it's a hell of a lot more entertaining. Sometimes you do want to watch gunfights and explosions. And if someone cracks a joke too, like, hey, I'm here for it. I know that this film was like originally cited, like there's a lot of violence, but I think because maybe it's because we're modern viewers, it all looks so fake, you know? Like the blood is, doesn't look like blood. It's very red and very thick. So you're able to kind of take yourself out of this being a real situation. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel so serious because it feels like a movie. <laughs> We've seen a lot more sex and violence in TV shows and movies today in 2021. So we're almost desensitized to a different degree than we might have been back then. Um, I do want to read this quote about how it revitalized the genre as well. I don't know who said it, but it says, um, this film, Die Hard, revitalized the action genre largely due to its depiction of McLean as a vulnerable and fallible protagonist. Throughout the course of the film, John McLean figures out that he has to use his wits to beat these guys. His first thought is, oh shit, I am here by myself with a bunch of, you know, innocent unarmed hostages and a bunch of heavily armed terrorists i need backup and so he immediately starts trying to reach to the outside world you know he pulls the fire alarm that fails he gets up on the roof with the cb radio and tries to get someone and the the dispatcher is like hey you're not supposed to be on this channel you're going to get an faa violation blah, blah, blah and he has to outthink and outwit these terrorists he cannot use blunt force he can't punch them he can't you know shoot them I mean, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly to the audience and to McLean, I think, that these guys have an amazing airtight plan. Like they have contingency plans for their contingency plans. They are in total control at all times. Something you just reminded me of was like, you said nobody believes him. He tries to get people's attention and nobody believes him. And I think that's another element, one of realism, but two of like, it's more mindful of women and how they feel a lot. Um, because a lot of times women are not believed and not heard. So it's like putting men in an empathetic situation towards another man for not being believed while potentially changing their little baby brains and making them more empathetic to other people by witnessing John McLean not being believed. Absolutely. That's like, and that also ties back into the moment you had pointed out where um, Sergeant Powell says the terrorists are gonna shoot the lights and nobody listens to him until Robinson, the white cop says, ah, oh, they're shooting out the lights. And it's like, that's literally what he just said. 
people not listening to each other. It's a failure to communicate. And this movie is all about communication and learning how to communicate and getting over your fears and the things that hold you back. In the first couple hours after the terrorists arrive at the party and take it over, like he's kind of doing like a a survey getting the lay of the land. Okay. Who are these guys? He's, you know, he writes down their names on his arm and he's doing tally marks. Okay. There's this many I've killed this many there's Tony and Carl, like all that stuff. He's getting the lay of the land. He's doing recon for sure. And he pretty quickly realizes, I think that he's in over his head. He is not going to be Sylvester Stallone, Rambo, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whatever, and take on this entire group of terrorists by himself. He is one person, like it's a very tense situation and he can't go it alone. He needs help. And the people that understand him are the people that are truly listening. Al understands that he's a cop because he's really listening. He's like fully communicating. And the people that are like getting in the information but not really listening and not communicating, they're the ones that don't help, that don't see the picture. They arrive on the scene and they're like, we know exactly what's going on and this is what we're going to do. Robinson and all the other LAPD guys. Side note, for Sergeant Powell's introduction, you know, he's buying the Twinkies at an AM PM and then he walks out. Holy shit. Did you see the cost of a gallon of regular unleaded gas at that gas station? What was it, Sarah? It was 74 cents. Oh my God. I cannot. I just filled up my car the other day and it was what, like 450? Is it 449 right now at my local cheap gas station? So unfortunately I had to buy gas when it was at its highest, like a week or two ago. I paid 483 a gallon. Oh my God. Los Angeles, baby. Yeah. 74 cents for a gallon of regular unleaded at that AM PM. And that's down in Century City. That's on the West side. And that's like fancy pantsy. Okay, and I just want to add one more layer to this. They also play with our expectations of who we think this cop will be because the first thing we do is we see him buying a bunch of Twinkies. So in our head, we do what the AMPM clerk is doing and go, hey, you're a cop, you're buying donuts. And he's like, no, they're for my wife who's pregnant and she's having a baby. And he um, he donates to, he gives his change to Dare, the charity in the little bucket. So yeah. we see what kind of person he is right away. He's thoughtful, he's considerate of his wife, he's getting her what she needs. Um, and he's also giving and he's kind of someone who's rude to him. So we're like, okay, right off the bat, Al's fabulous. That is one thing that I think this film really leans hard into and does so well is all these instances of situational irony. Like you hear one thing and see something else, like at the point where the media at that news station, they bring an expert on to talk about hostage situations and everything coming out of his mouth is total bullshit. Like he's talking about, well, at this stage in the proceedings, the hostages will have developed a psychological, you know, all that mumbo jumbo. But while he's saying that, we that's right when we see the terrorists dragging away Ellis's dead body and all the, the hostages are terrified. So clearly what is happening in real life has no bearing on what that guy is blabbing about on TV. There's also the instance when the FBI guys cut power to Nakatomi Plaza and all the lights go out and they're they're like laughing to themselves like oh they've got to be you know shitting their pants now ha 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 cut two that's right when the seventh lock opens and they get the vault open and then there's like you know ode to joy and and theo's like merry christmas and they finally have gotten to the vault and all those millions of dollars and they've reached their objective right at the moment when the fbi 
is sure that they are in trouble. The FBI's predictability was part of their plan, especially they were like, they're going to follow the terrorist playbook. That's what they're going to do. And they do it. That's exactly what they do. There's no assessing the situation or thinking outside the box. And that's like what Bruce Willis and Al are doing. They're assessing the situation as it is right now. I hate to say I've been saying it so much and people are going to hate it, but they're not like stroking their own egos of like, Psh, I'm an expert at this. I'm perfect at this. I know what to do. They're like taking the situation in separately as it is. And that's what sets them apart. And that's why they survive. Um, I do also want to mention that that also shows the pomposity, that one moment you talked about earlier when they have the expert on the show, they also show the pomposity of the news anchor, right? So it's like this white man inserting himself and being like, I know the correct answer. And they're like, that's not the correct answer. Helsinki in Sweden. <laughs> and the guy goes, it's Finland. And we see just like this, uh, you know, I know the correct information. I am a white male in charge. And you're like, oh God, no, you don't. You know, you don't. So again, I'm sorry, I don't mean to rail against like white men. I, I'm just talking about like this film really highlights toxicity in, male, in men and shows it to be a bad thing. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and it, it, there's examples of classic and traditional ideas of masculinity being torn down. I mean, the whole conversation that McLean and Gruber have about cowboys, which I think is during their very first interaction over the CB radios. They talk about John Wayne and Rambo and Marshall Dillon, which is uh, Matt Dillon from the old TV show Gunsmoke. The old radio show, you mean, because that's sure how I know it. So it's one of those shows that started out on radio and then migrated to TV. Yeah, Gunsmoke was huge. But all of them, like this, I am fascinated by American Western films because the Western is such a white masculine space. The entire genre is about white men going out into the capital W West and conquering it, like claiming it, making it his bitch. Well, and it's completely fictional. Adam Ruins Everything did a whole episode where he ruined the West. And it was like, no, actually, like immigrants and sex workers were what made the West. Like they were the people that immigrants, sex workers yeah. and indigenous people were what made the West the West. Not white men on horses. Yeah, and it's interesting that Gruber says John Wayne Rambo and McClane says, well, no, actually, I like Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers is like a singing cowboy who wears sequin shirts. Who like works with kids too. He's like, yippee kaye kids. Like it's a children's cowboy, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's a totally different idea of masculinity. And, and McLean's like, no, I'm more partial to that guy. Not the bulging muscle John Wayne idea of what a man should be. He references at the end when Hans Gruber's like, you're not John Wayne, you're not going to ride with Grace Kelly out to the sunset. And he's like, um, first of all, it was Gary Cooper that was with Grace Kelly. Second of all, he doesn't say this, but we classic movie fans know this. Grace Kelly saves Gary Cooper's life in High Noon. 100%. So I was like, yes, of course he knows the feminist Western and the one where Grace Kelly is a hero too. I, I love that even more about John McClane because I was like, of course he knows this. Of course Hans Gruber doesn't. Of course he does. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, the, the ideas of masculinity and what works and what doesn't. And he saves the day. He's the guy we're rooting for. And he doesn't have to be like a macho asshole. No, I mean, he kind of starts out that way a tiny bit. Like I noticed at the top, almost like this idea that California and Californians are code word for emotionality. Like when he arrives at LAX, you know, he sees that one couple who like throw each themselves into each other's arms and he kind of like rolls his eyes and shakes his head or something as he goes out to meet the limo driver. And then when he's at the party and that super drunk guy walks up to him, is like, okay, hey, Merry Christmas and kisses him on the cheek. And he kind of shoves him away and he goes like, oh, California. He's standoffish at the beginning. I interpreted that as like bimbos and idiots. So thank you for pointing out that it was emotion based. Cause I was like, oh my God, he's calling us bimbos. He thinks we're morons out here. When Argyle's driving him from 
LAX to Nakatomi Plaza, you know, they're both in the limo and, and Argyle's peppering him with all these questions, asking him super personal stuff about his relationship with Holly and his marriage and her job. And he, he keeps Argyle at arm's length through that conversation. He doesn't say like, yeah, you're right. We are having trouble in our marriage. He's just kind of like, yeah, you're really insightful. You got it. He has a problem with opening himself up at the beginning. You're right. Even the guy on the airplane who's giving him all this advice, the guy says to him something like, oh, are you afraid of flying or you don't like airplanes? And he's like, what gives you that impression? Like he never answers the question. Defensive, not answering it with a straight answer. I have a side theory that Argyle is the audience. Whatever Argyle does is like what the audience might do with the exception of drinking and driving. We do not condone that here on Talk Classic to Me. There's that one point when they cut to Argyle and he's listening to John McClane over the CB telling off that one asshole cop and he applauds him. I feel like he's kind of like the audience's way in. Argyle gets a taste of luxury. He's like, oh baby, I'm all in. I'm luxing it up, which is what we would do. 100%. He gets trapped in the garage and he ends up having a heroic moment. You know, he like runs into the other car when he knows what's going on and he punches Theo in the face. But like for the most part he does what a normal human would do he lays low because he is not armed and he is smack dab in the middle of a terrorist situation yeah. so yeah you know what stay out of the way and let people handle stuff if you don't know what to do argyle is us like we as the audience kind of sit in his shoes and i do love the way they show us john mcclain his uncomfortability with things like limousines he's a different kind of person because he's not going to ride in the back of the limo he's going to ride up front with the driver he's blue collar working class he's a new york cop not pretentious he has no airs and he's not greedy right like ellis would be in the back doing coke he's not ellis i do want to make sure we talk about the casting of bruce willis because believe it or not bruce willis is like a huge star today but he was not a huge movie star in 1988. This is his first like really big breakout film role. Um, he was doing a television show called Moonlighting with Sybil Shepard, which I know that I would love if I watched it based on the descriptions. I'm sorry, it's a murder mystery. Yes, please. It's, it's pretty fun. I've watched some of the episodes. You can't watch it anywhere. It's not streaming. You can't get it. This is ridiculous. I should be watching this program. Somebody show it and stream it. So anyway, Bruce Willis was not even an original consideration. Originally, this part was offered to people like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, even Richard Gere and Harrison Ford, and several other people. I think Burt Reynolds was offered the part. They all said no. Bruce Willis originally couldn't do it because he had a contract with Moonlighting, but then Sybil Shepard, she got pregnant and her maternity leave worked out with the shooting schedule. So he was able to be off of Moonlighting for enough time to do this film. Also, I want to mention that this was Alan Rickman's screen debut. I mean, who does not love Alan Rickman? Let's just put that out there. He makes such a splash in this film. This film makes him a movie star as well. But Alan Rickman's backstory, he's obviously British, and um, he didn't know right away that he wanted to be an actor. He was actually a graphic designer for a couple years before he ended up going to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art when he was in his mid-20s. I think he was like 26 when he got in. And so he studies there for two years, uh, becomes a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, ends up doing a play with them, Les Liaisons Dangerous, which is, you know, dangerous liaisons and or cruel intentions. And he plays Valmont, who's like, you know, the villain that falls in love. The main, the main male lead The main character, dude. Yeah. Ryan Phillippe, if you will. That play is crazy because it, out of that play came three movies. Yeah, because it's like they did Valmont, they did um, Dangerous Liaisons, and when was the third one? Basically, there were producers from three different movies who went to see this play and were like, oh my God, this play is amazing. 
two of the movie producers were like, we need to adapt this. And then you get, like you said, Velmont and Dangerous Liaisons. You get John Malkovich and Colin Firth, just a side note. But when they were doing Dangerous Liaisons, they opted not to, even though Alan Rickman was killing it every night on stage, they're like, ah, but no one knows who this guy is. So there's no name recognition. So we'll throw John Malkovich in there. So the fact that they didn't cast Alan Rickman in there made him available to do this film because the producers of Die Hard were also in the audience of Dangerous Liaisons and were like, oh, hey, maybe that guy who played Valmont would make a good Hans Gruber. And it's so interesting to me that he does such a fantastic job on film for the first time. I mean, he's in his early 40s, so he does have like life experience. But being on a film set is very different from doing a play. So he's able to adapt and give a fantastic performance. He I don't want to say he steals the show because this is there's so many people that shined in this film, but he turns in an excellent performance, especially considering this is like his film debut. One of the reasons I think his part is so good is um, when D'Souza took over like writing the screenplay, he was thinking of Hans Gruber as the protagonist. How would you feel if someone kept trying to ruin your plans and you had these amazing plans? So he feels like it's more fully fleshed out um, in the writing. And then Alan Rickman, incredible Shakespearean actor, very smart man takes over and you've got gold. He is totally in charge, just like in many ways a protagonist would be in a film. That is like one of the main aspects of an action film is that the actual protagonist, the Bruce Willis character, John McClane, he's the hero of this picture because he's the one who defeats the bad guys. He is not in charge. He does not have a plan because he did not show up at this Christmas party expecting there would be a hostage situation. So he is making it up as he goes, he is trying to figure out what's going on and how he's going to thwart the bad guys. And he is always two steps behind them. He is always reacting to what's happening, not taking the initiative. That is what happens in action films. Like the protagonist is more passive because things are happening. Action is happening. Explosions are going off and people are shooting guns at each other. And you are reacting to what's going on. That's what Indiana Jones does in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's what... John McClane has to do here when he's, you know, face to face with these super, super prepared, well armored thieves that, you know, they've got a truck down in the basement with a decoy ambulance. They have all these automatic machine guns. They have a freaking rocket launcher. They have C4. They have all the stuff. They know exactly what the cops are going to do. They know what the FBI is going to do. And it's part of their plan. It's like Ocean's Eleven from the opposite perspective. Like what would happen if you were Ocean's Eleven and you were, had planned this incredible heist and this one cop was, you know, the fly in the ointment. And it's interesting to see like who you would count as the bad guy or not because in Ocean's Eleven, we're rooting for them. We want them to steal the money and get away with it. But in this, clearly we're not rooting for the terrorists. They're murderers. To me, an action film is just what's next. That's an action film. Yeah, he's constantly trying to figure out like what is their game plan? What is going on? Why were those guys up on the roof? I also once heard, I don't remember where he heard this, but I also once heard that this movie came from the image of a man in an air shaft with a lighter, totally dirty, with a white tank top, bare feet. I heard like that was the image and we're gonna work from there. How did this man get there? What are the circumstances that got him here? And that's what that whole movie explains. There's no fat on the exposition. They give us everything we need. They give us making fists with your toes. That's why he's barefoot. He's cleaning up. That's why his shirt's off. Like they give us every explanation as to how that man got into that situation. And it almost feels like that's what the whole movie is about. 
getting him in that situation so they can work backwards from there, answering those questions up front. Yeah, this this screenplay is lean and mean. Even the characters in this that only have a line or two, like everyone is so well drawn. Like the businessman on the plane at the very, very beginning. I counted. That actor has three lines. And he is arguably one of the most consequential characters in the, the movie because he's the one who tells McLean to take his shoes off, which ends up having immense consequences. The actors here are good. Yeah. Betty Spaghetti from A League of Their Own is in this as um, Richard, the awful newspaper man's assistant. Like, they have really good actors in these roles who bring a lot to yeah, it. Yes, so and we have William Atherton, who plays the EPA guy in Ghostbusters. But he's so good at playing awful, awful, insufferable humans. Yeah. This reporter is insufferable, immoral, and cruel. He he ruins things for them. Um, he goes to Holly's house, and Holly has even the smallest, like, it might seem like an inconsequential detail. She has a Latinx maid named Paulina. He threatens Paulina with deportation and calling INS, so she lets him in because she's afraid for her, like, livelihood and life. Yeah. And he exploits her family and her kids. He's repulsive and disgusting um, and greedy. He ties in with the greedy people and all about glory, which is like kind of a toxic masculine thing. Glory at any cost without any empathy. For him, it's not about reporting the news and informing the public. It's about getting the good scoop and, you know, sticking it to your coworkers who hate you, showing them who's the best. And guess what? That's a theme in Die Hard 2 as well. He's back for Die Hard 2 and he sucks just as bad then. He sucks. But you know what? Bonnie Bedelia gets to punch him in the face in the end. And I think she speaks for all of us when she does that. Let's talk about Holly. She is a cool cucumber. I want to mention her casting. She's played by an actress named Bonnie Bedelia, who is also in Die Hard 2. Um, but she was in this movie called Heart Like a Wheel, which is about a race car driver. And Bruce Willis saw her in that. And this is maybe folklore, but apparently he suggested her for this part based on that performance. She meets Hans Gruber's eyes. She never cowers in front of him ever. She is totally in charge. She is awesome in this movie. Well, and this movie does contain certain like obnoxious stereotypes of women sometimes. Like there's that woman who can't stop screaming and you're like, okay, I, in real life, when shit goes down, I've never seen a woman behave that way if I'm being completely honest. I've never seen a woman lose her head and scream for like 10 minutes. Never seen it. I've also never seen like a shot up body of a human. So maybe that's part of it. But I'm just saying to me, that doesn't seem like the regular reaction. That seems like a very shallow film reaction. And that's what we get in this. And then it's also frustrating. We're going to talk about this in the modern lens part. But I do get frustrated about the nudity in this film because it's nudity just to objectify women and for no reason. Yeah. And I've noticed it happens in the beginning of the film when we're in more of the like toxic male mindset. So I can kind of put it with that. But there's another part of me that's like, these guys are here for an action movie. They should get some boobies. And I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. For every boobie, you show me a penis. How about that? How about that? Oh, you're not comfortable with that? Then don't show the boobies. Let that actress be. It's pretty gratuitous. And I'm not saying like breasts are not beautiful, but it, it's there's a difference to me between like objectifying women's bodies and like honoring women's bodies. And this is definitely on the objectifying front. Yeah. But let's, yeah, chat about Holly. You go for it, girl. She's awesome. And I wish she had a bigger part. But I mean, after Takagi is shot, she's like, you know, second in command. She takes over. Everyone is looking to her for answers. What do we do? How do we deal with this? She's the one that gets sent in to deal with Hans Gruber to, you know, get the couch for the pregnant lady to sit on. You know, they've just been at a party where everyone's been guzzling champagne. Everyone has to pee really bad. So, like, she's the one who makes that happen, too. And, you know, she has the presence of mind to not reveal that, you know, she's Mrs. McLean. She has no connection to him. She doesn't, you know, point out 
the photo of him that is sitting on the shelf behind her, the desk where Gruber is sitting. and Yep, they're inside her office. They're in front of pictures of her kids. She gives nothing away. And her choices are what save her. The fact that she wanted to go by Holly Gennaro, and when she has that line where he asks what her name is, and she's like, Miss Gennaro. She's standing next to her name, so they know it's her. You know, it's one of those things like, she's yeah. telling the truth, she really is that, this is her office. And her decision to put the picture of John down saves her life. So like, all of her decisions have saved her and kept her alive. She never gives anything away, and it's not her fault when they figure out it's McLean, that's her husband, it's the evil reporter's fault, you know? That's how he puts two and two together. Well, technically, there's a direct line between Ellis going in to talk to Gruber, giving up his name, and then Gruber says the name, on the CB radio that everyone is tuned into, the reporter hears it. Ellis kicks off that whole part of the movie where his identity is revealed. I will say Ellis doesn't give away as much as you fear. When I was first cognizantly watching this, I remember thinking like, ah, oh, shit, this douchebag is going to say her name. He's going to get her in trouble. So at least there's the smallest bit, even though he's, you know, a betrayer and an idiot and just greedy, there is the smallest bit of honor in him because he doesn't give up Holly. He says, it's my friend. So there's like the tiniest bit of honor in that, but he shouldn't have been doing that at all. The mediocre white man syndrome bit of it all of like, well, I'm bigger than this. I can get past this. They won't hurt me. Well, also he's on cocaine. True. Which as my mother would say, that's God's way of telling you, you have too much money. He blows a rail. He feels like a million bucks and he's like, I'm ready to negotiate with these terrorists. I can go toe to toe with Hans Gruber. Hans, booby. I'm your white knight. Ellis is played by an actor named Hart Bochner, who is a working actor. He still, you know, is is chugging along. And apparently that line was improv And that's why Alan Rickman gave him this look like, what the fuck are you saying? And he just really, he got that character, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. He, he is that character. And it's like a different, each of the toxic masculine men are like a different form of it. And it's like he covers that genre of toxic masculinity. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> of like yuppie toxic masculinity. The quintessential 80s finance yuppie. One thing I think is really cool about this film is that the people of color are incredibly valuable in this film. While it's unfortunate that a lot of them don't get to be like John McClane, the main character, um, there's still, I feel like people of color are portrayed in a positive light in this film. Even the villain, even Theo, He's the only one that's not flat out murdered, by the way. He's like the tech genius and he's very funny. He's there for comedic relief. But like we have Theo, who's a black man who is like invaluable to Hans's plan. He could not do this without Theo. So we have that. And then we have like Reginald Val Johnson playing Al, this kind, good hearted, like we've established he's not the greatest policeman, but like he's very valuable in this film you know his opinions matter <laughs> like he matters so like we have him mr takagi we talked a lot about the way he listens to women and like has them on his staff in high up positions yeah. um oh argyle argyle helps save the day but he is in a position of service but you know what i'm trying to say i feel like they're the people of color in this are the good guys i guess with the exception of one of the johnsons that is murdered but he was head of the fbi but he's not the one that says the asshole thing about Vietnam. He's the one that's like, you're a dick for saying that. So I don't know. I was noticing that. I was like, okay, so at least people of color are portrayed in a more positive light, essentially, in this film, which is nice to see, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, and with the two FBI guys, you know, they're both named Johnson. Like, it kind of sets them on an equal playing field, in a way. They're both FBI agents. They have the same surname. They are going into this, you know, as partners to try to tackle this terrorist hostage situation and they're working together. It's not, you know, like 
a, a supervisor and a subordinate. Although I do want to also mention that when it's like the men that are behaving in, I've said toxic masculinity a million times, but I don't know a better word for it. I'm sorry, people. But it's like when people are behaving in that way, that's when the most people die. When people mm -hmm. just don't, it's like they don't even care about the loss. They're not going to listen. They, they're going to do what they're going to do. It's going to involve violence. And it, even when they're talking about the hostages, they're like, yeah, 25% might die. That's fine. When they're sending those police officers in for the first time and they all get murdered, that's like SWAT team. And John McClane is trying to warn them. And so is Al. It's just like, no, this is what I want to do. So we're doing it. I don't care if it's wrong. I don't care if people die. It's just like so much life is lost uselessly, needlessly, because people won't listen. The crazy thing, I mean, that tank that the LAPD comes out with. It's so stupid. It is, but it's also crazy. Like they have this pseudo military equipment that they have access to. It made me think. So last year I read this book called Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. And it's about this crazy bank heist that happened in 1980 in the town of Norco, California, which is pretty much the reason why, you know, the police got militarized. These bank robbers were so, so well equipped, had such heavy duty arsenal at their fingertips that they totally outgunned the cops in Norco. And just that one bank heist almost single-handedly led to the militarization of the police, where they now have these bigger, better weapons. They've got the tanks and the Humvees and, you know, body armor and all this stuff that they didn't used to have before that. So like that happened less than 10 years before Die Hard came out. Well, and my note was like, they're literally trying to penetrate the building. Like, could we get more phallic? But it's like, that doesn't work. The terrorists get through so well because they're all on the same page. Everyone being on a different page makes it a lot harder to work together. They make a point of showing like every time the heroes, the good guys do something, would cut to the bad guys and see like, oh, the bad guys are not impacted by this at all. They just broke through the fourth lock. They're still getting through the vault. They're still on target, going through their checklists, no problem. I mean, the media and the cops don't show up until halfway through the movie. I checked it. It was like the 57-minute mark is when John McClane finally gets someone to realize what's going on. That's when, you know, the body falls on top of Powell's car, and he finally gets back up to come. Um, so now the wider world is aware of what's going on, and... John McClane has these detonators. I almost feel like the detonators are the MacGuffin in this movie. Like the detonators are so important. The detonators for a long time are the only leverage McClane has over the terrorists. Like they are still in charge. They know exactly what they're doing and what's going on, but they just need the detonators. They need to make sure they get their hands on the detonators again. And McClane has them. And when he loses them, which, okay, this was kind of a problem for me because I couldn't figure out, I went back and watched it a couple of times. So McLean and Hans Gruber meet up on the roof. You know, they share a cigarette. He runs away. Carl comes up and joins them. And that's when Hans Gruber says, shoot the glass. Because he had, had spotted that McLean is barefoot, which is a huge liability. And Gruber makes it into an even bigger liability by covering the ground with shards of glass. But at some point in that fire, you know, they're shooting back and forth at each other. McLean had this bag strapped across his chest that had the detonators in it. He somehow loses it, and I don't understand why. You see him really quick in a shot. He removes the bag from his shoulder, but then he like leaves it there and runs away. But now they have the detonators. Did he have to remove the bag so that his like gun arm was free, like so he could get? I don't know. Like this goes back to what I said about action heroes often like they are not in con 
control of the plot. They're reacting to stuff. Like, well, and they're allowed to make human mistakes too. Like, there are times when John survives because he's lucky, not just because of like good old American skill. You know what I mean? So it's like that could have just been a mistake, and we'll never know. You're right. I hadn't considered why, how, or why the detonators get left behind, other than like you're under fire literally, and you're barefoot having to walk over glass. Like. I forget my keys leaving my house. I can imagine. <laughs> like, but it's crazy because once he, you know, drops that bag and leaves the detonators behind and, you know, Gruber picks it up and he's like, all right, we've got the detonators. That literally means that McLean has had zero impact on their plan. They are still on track to get to the vault, to, you know, blow up the roof, to kill the FBI guys and then escape in the ambulance that they have down in the garage. With the exception of killing several of them. Yes. But like you said, like Theo, the computer hacker, is the only non-expendable member of that team. Like all the rest of those guys are hired muscle. They're just standing around with machine guns to keep the hostages under control. And again, Theo's the only one that's never officially killed on screen. He gets punched. He gets knocked out, which I also appreciate. It's by another person of color. It's by another black man. And I'm like, I do appreciate that as opposed to like a white man hitting him. Yeah. You know. Also, that moment reminds me of something I was loving was when Argyle realizes what's going on. First of all, he freaks out because that's a normal human reaction to have. Mm -hmm. But then when he's like, oh, I see what's going on and I'm going to stop it and I'm going to do something about it. He drives really slow and really smoothly. Like It's like the driving version of sneaking up on someone and I love it. But this ties into a moment with Bruce Willis. It reminded me because I was like, ooh, two sneaky graceful moments. Alexander Gudnov, who's like a freaking famous Russian ballerina, ballerino, ballet star, <laughs> he like sneaks up on Bruce Willis in a very graceful, quiet way. So I was like, oh my gosh, we've got the reverse Argyle. It's like, so that moment happens first and then the Argyle moment happens. So I was like, oh, it happens once for the bad guys, the sneak attack, and then once for the good guys, the sneak attack. One of the reasons I also want to point this out, I just want to talk about Alexander Gudnov for a minute. He is so good in these action sequences and so graceful and so like, thoughtful of how he moves his body and it's gorgeous like his fight choreography is beautiful a thing to behold his kick into bruce willis you're like oh my god that's gorgeous but like i just want to touch on him because he's so interesting alexander gudnov was a russian dancer um he trained with mikhail barishnikov they came up together oh my god he was originally with the bolshoi ballet he ended up defecting to america they were worried he was going to defect to america so they put him on a ban from touring in america for four years and then he does defect to America. But I guess his wife went back to Russia. So it was like a big deal. But he does defect to America. And then he starts working with the American Ballet Theater, ABT, which is like the best in the land. We're ballet fans here. Um, so he's in ABT. But he and Bershnikov don't get along. They have like a, a falling out and he leaves. And I remember <laughs> there was this book that came out in the 2000s called, um, I think it was called Black Swan, White Swan. And it was a gorgeous book of short stories about ballet. <laughs> And he was the subject of one of them. Really? Um, and it ended up talking about like how an injury forced him to quit younger than he thought. He would quit ballet. And he made this whole second career out of action films and out of films. So he does, before this film, he does a film called Witness, um, where he plays like an Amish. Is he a farmer in that? I don't <gasps> remember. Yes. But he's that beautiful blonde Amish man who I didn't trust for a lot of the film, but he turns out fine, guys. It's fine. Yes. But he, oh that's gosh. his like film debut, and he finds this whole second career as an action star and then dies tragically young at 45. So he plays Carl, right? Yeah, he plays Carl. So brother of beautiful hipster Tony is Carl. Long blonde hair, full of vengeance, very graceful, and he has a major plot hole. There are several plot holes in this film. Let's discuss. One, how the hell is Carl not dead? Carl is literally hung, but from the neck. 
like on a chain and when the hostages are running down the stairs, they all see him hanging. He's still, and he looks like he's been dead for a long time. How is he alive? How can he leave Nakatomi Plaza to try to kill Bruce Willis again? There might be some like physics fancy explanation of that, but yeah, that, I mean, he does seem pretty dead after that fight sequence with Bruce Willis. It's very Michael Myers of like, how are you alive? Huh? How'd you get up? Clearly someone had removed him from the chains and brought him down thinking he was dead. How would they not have noticed like, oh, hey, this guy still has a pulse. I thought he got himself down. That's what I was thinking. I thought he was like in a body, like someone had brought him down. He was in a body bag or something. Oh, we'll never know. Cause how did he have a gun? Yeah, where'd the gun come from too? How? I don't know. I don't know how the hell he got down. Maybe his ballerina training. That's a scene I would have liked to have seen. Maybe it's one of the deleted scenes. That was a plot hole. Just how the hell does Carl get out? He's only, he only gets out so that Al could show that Al has changed. So he has a redemptive arc. He shoots the bad guy. I think it's good that he's on the desk after killing a teenager by accident. I think yeah. that's fine. Um, okay. So anyway, uh, that's one plot hole. Another plot hole that we've kind of discussed is the car in the van. I, if I remember correctly, when I watched that, like, how did they make this? They realized partway through, oh, fuck, how are these guys going to get out? Oh, that those guys were all in the back of that van, also with an ambulance. Well, because they show us the shot where the truck opens and we see all the men walk out and you can visibly see that there's no ambulance in there. But you don't totally think about it because the ambulance comes out so much later. Your eye is drawn to, in that shot, you know, Alan Rickman. It is. I mean, if you are peering over his head looking to see what else is in that truck, you're not paying attention to the right thing in that shot. We talked about Theo. Do you think Theo lives? This is my question about Theo. So Theo does get knocked out. Like, what happens to Theo? Does Theo get caught? Does Theo escape? Argyle bursts out of the garage and immediately grabs the McLeans and drives off into the sunset with them, metaphorically. Yeah, I don't know. Like, he's just down there, knocked out cold in the garage. <laughs> Someone at some point, they're going to have to do a sweep of the building, right? And see like, oh, hey. I kind of wish in one of the diehards, because they don't do this in the diehards. Well, the diehards that I've seen. I have not seen four and five. Um, but I've seen two and three, and they're great. Especially three. But one is my favorite. I, I kind of wish, because he very much could have escaped. And I kind of wish he had been a future a future villain. They could have totally used that. Die Hard 3 is literally called with a vengeance. <laughs> like, couldn't Theo <laughs> have been a part of that? Just there saying. There we go. Yeah, any, I feel like anytime you don't actually show a character dying on screen, like if it happens off camera in any way, then you can totally bring them back to life for the sequel. So we'll just never know what happened to Theo, but he could be in a sequel. He could have totally escaped. There was so much time. To, like, come to and run away. I mean, that building has 35 stories that they have to go through. The the cops or whoever is assessing this scene afterwards, you know, kind of doing a post-mortem, they would have seen that green truck down in the garage, and they would have seen the ambulance with a big dent in the side. They would have eventually interviewed Argyle. They would have eventually interviewed John McLean. But what's interesting is they don't get to debrief him before he leaves. He leaves before the debrief, which we're all in favor of. Like, he's just lived a hard life. Let him go. None of the hostages saw Theo. Theo is never in the room with them, I don't think. Yeah, the only person who sees Theo is the original security guard down on the first floor, and they shoot him. So Theo could have 100% gotten away. And honestly, because he's fun and comedic and smart, we're all like, okay, he doesn't kill anybody himself, right? No, Carl does. They come in on the ground floor. Carl shoots the guy, and Theo hops over the desk and starts taking over the, you know, the tech, all the computer monitors and all that in the building 
And then, well, he's in the room then when they're trying to get Takagi to give up the code. So those are the only two people who see Theo because then Theo spends almost the rest of the movie. He's either in the room with the vault, you know, cracking through the rest of the locks. And then he goes into the other room and he's monitoring the screens to see like, okay, there's the FBI guys have arrived. Now they're going to shut the power off and all that. So we very much just made a case for how Theo could still be alive and how there could still to this day be a reboot with Theo. Just saying. Just saying. And then, I mean, the final plot hole, we had mentioned the watches, so I don't need to bring that back up. But in recent viewings, people had thought about Alan Rickman's character and the accent and how does Bruce Willis know? And now we know it was the watches. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how he knew he would have been one of the terrorists. So we, we closed that loophole because it was a deleted scene. There are a couple more fun facts I want to insert. Some of the best moments in this have been improvised. So we had mentioned the Hans, Bubby, I'm your white knight that Ellis does. Um, But Theo, one of my favorite lines of his, when he's like, the quarterback is toast. He made that up. It's fabulous. And then um, one of the best moments in the whole film, as everyone will agree, is when there's the terrorist who steals the bar of chocolate, he steals the crunch bar. That was improvised. And then they just totally added it to later scenes. Yeah, from the newsstand. Yes, because as a viewer, I'm watching that going like, oh, that chocolate looks good. And then you see it in his eyes. He goes, hmm, that chocolate looks good. And you're like, oh, you're going to do, <laughs> yep, he steals the chocolate, as we all would. Why not? And then I also want to just throw some fun technical stuff in there. Oh, this is another plot hole, though, too. So the way the glass shatters, it's, you know, sugar glass made of sugar. But what I don't understand as a viewer is why John McClane cannot break that glass. It is so hard to break the glass. He eventually has to do it with gunshots. One, to break in when he's like on that fire hose, and two, when he's trying to like throw things out of the window, the windows don't break, right? Mm-hmm. When Hans Gruber dies, the window shatters as though tis nothing. And you're like, okay, so are the windows made of different glass on different floors? I call foul. That's interesting, yeah. You do see that there's a small hole. Yeah, a single bullet is not enough to break that entire pane of glass. But yeah, I thought that was very interesting this time around as a plot hole thing of like, oh, why does that glass break super easy, but that glass doesn't? Yeah. Hmm. Inquiring minds want to know. Also, I do want to mention John McTiernan is the director of this film, and he also directed Predator. He came back to direct Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is the second best, and some would say best in the franchise. Um, He directed The Hunt for Red October, The Last Action Hero, and um, The Thomas Crown Affair from 1999. And those are all pretty solid action films. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about him personally, so I don't know if he's a good or bad guy. Um, And I'm sorry we didn't really talk about Bruce Willis. The only thing I've heard about him recently was what I heard on the Bonfire of the Vanities podcast from TCM. It sounds like, you know, Moonlighting was his big break when he got cast on that. He was, you know, a starving actor before he got cast on that. And so he was grateful to have a job, you know, to be able to pay his bills and keep a roof over his head. But then once he had Die Hard, you know, it became a massive hit huge box office success and it was like oh hey I could move up onto greener pastures I don't have to be a tv star I can be an action star and I think kind of some people have said that that went to his head but I mean you know everyone reacts to fame and success differently that's all I can say about that I don't know in general if all these people are good people or not because sometimes I like to call out shitty behavior I'm sure there is shitty behavior somewhere I don't know just take it with a grain of salt is what I'm saying terrible people have been making incredible art for always and so like if that's something that's important to you to determine like do that do the research 
I did read that Alan Rickman and Bonnie Bedelia became great friends while they were making this and they like they would have lunch together every day because they were like on the same set the whole time, right? Oh, that's right. That was something else that we don't really think about as viewers, but um, Bruce Willis did a lot of his scenes totally isolated on his own. So he like didn't really get to know the rest of the cast. Yeah. Plus he was dating Demi Moore at the time, so she would come and have lunch with him. So he really didn't get to interact with a lot of these actors and they all got to interact with each other because they all had scenes together. Because they're all supposed to be on that 30th floor where the party was being held. Plus, the rumor is Alan Rickman was just a doll, a peach, lovely, like everybody loves him. <laughs> That's like the word on the street. But fame came to him later. Oh, and I do want to mention Alan Rickman. Obviously, people at home, you know him as Professor Snape in the Harry Potter films. Obviously, you know him from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You know him from Sense and Sensibility, I'm sure. He was a lovely human being. Like, he was great with the kid actors on the Harry Potter sets. So it just sounds like he was a delight to work with. And he, we lost him way too soon. He died. He actually died the same week that David Bowie died um, in January uh, 2016. And he died, I believe, of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Yeah, I think both of them had cancer. They were both only 69 years old, which is too young. So sad. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Bonnie Bedelia sounds really nice too. I don't know if she's still a working actor, but she was a working actor for a long time. She was on the series Parenthood and everyone really loves that show. So yeah. And she was in um, that Paul Newman film, Fat Man and Little Boy. <laughs> um, she was in Anywhere But Here, which I totally love. And she was in, I had mentioned earlier, Heart Like a Wheel, which she's she plays a race car driver. And then um, Die Hard 2 and Presumed Innocent are some of her notable works. The last little tidbit fact I want to get to is about our building. And you know how in Sex and the City, everybody's like, New York is the fifth lady. To me, in this, Nakatomi Plaza is the fifth lady. It is a character. <laughs> it's this unfinished building, which in real life is the Fox building in Century City. It is there. They give the actual address of the building. that it, it pops up on the screen when McLean reaches the, you know, the 911 dispatcher. It's what, 2121 Avenue of the Stars? So, and that is the actual address of the building. And then I want to add the way they blew it up was they did your classic, they made a miniature and blew up the miniature. It's seamless. You can't tell. It's great. I mean, the screenplay for this is so tight. Like there's so many elements and so many subplots and that you never lose track of them. I mean, you've got Hans Gruber and the terrorists. You've got John McClane. You've got the hostages. You've got the cops. You've got the FBI, you've got Argyle down in the basement, you've got the media, you've got the crew back at the news station, you've got the McLean, you know, the little kids at the house with Paulina. Like there's all these plot threads and they're so expertly woven together and they all influence each other. Everyone gets to physically or metaphorically punch a bad guy at the end. It's so true. Everyone has a satisfying conclusion. Argyle stops Theo and finishes his limo fare. Holly gets to punch the shitty reporter. The, the reporter gets his comeuppance on live TV. Al gets his redemption by shooting the bad guy. And yeah, like everyone's character arc gets wrapped up with a bow. It is so expertly done, so well written. And then one really cool detail that they have at the end so John McClane says to Argyle, Merry Christmas, Argyle. Argyle has the line, um, if this is your idea of Christmas, I got to be here for New Year's. So as he's saying New Year's, they're kissing like you do when it's New Year's Eve and you're having a new beginning, a new year at midnight with the person you love. So I was like, oh, they even do that. They start us off fresh on a new page with this couple by saying it's New Year's. They had problems, but everything's going to be okay now. The thieves are gone. Wait, that was a great line that Alan Rickman had where she's like, wait, you're just a common thief? Like after all those platitudes about terrorism, you're just a common thief? And he's like, no, I am an ex 
excellent thief. Oh, no, no. He says, I am an exceptional thief. We're going to talk about maybe any moments or quotes. We mentioned the yippee Kaye motherfucker that's based on Roy Rogers. yippee Kaye kids. That's the quintessential line from this movie. So this movie is streaming on several platforms, but if you watch it on Hulu, they edit that out. What do they say? He just says yippee Kaye and then they snip out the end. That's dumb. You need the motherfucker. Samuel L. Jackson would not approve. What's your favorite action moment? And what's your favorite smart ass line? I don't know what mine are, but I'm curious about yours. Oh man, jeez, excellent question. I don't know what mine is, but the fan is thrilling when he when he gets through the fan, and then when he's the gun is holding him up and he's got the gun strap, he's like hanging from it. He tries to grab the one air vent and he misses, and you're like, he missed it, but then he catches the next one. That's a very exciting moment, tense moment. I think the reason why I can't think of a specific action set piece that I like is because all of the action sequences in this contribute to the plot and developing the characters. They are all in service of the story. And so all of them feel necessary. They don't draw attention to themselves because they have to happen. Okay, so heading into the modern lens portion of the show, that's when we kind of call things out that maybe don't work and then maybe shout out things that do work. So um, we'd mentioned one of the things earlier, like obviously this is a very white film, but the thoughtfulness surrounding people of color and potentially like feminism and like not a macho man leading the pack and being willing to change and apologize, that's a really big deal. So those things hold up, I would say. Honestly, this movie holds up so well that it's almost jarring when you see the women on screen because the 80s fashion is so dated. The big teased out hair, the massive shoulder pads and the dresses, like all that stuff has, is clearly like, ugh, super 80s. In a way that the men's, the what the men are wearing isn't, that doesn't happen with them. I do also want to shout out, I mentioned like there's a woman who's like having sex in one of the offices and they very much exploit her bare breasts just because they want to show boobs. They also have that calendar um, with the woman with the naked breasts upstairs in one of the offices. It's a Playboy centerfold. Why does John hit it the second time? That's one of my questions. For good luck, I don't know. Because I was like, is he marking like, oh, I recognize that I've been here before I know where I am? Or is he like, boob, I can't tell which one it is. I mean, he could be using it as like a way marker. Like, oh, okay, I remember, I know where I am now because I remember this Playboy centerfold being taped to the wall. Total side note, but I love like kind of the nonsense in the beginning of them being like, the reason that you should think this man is viable is one, he's NYPD, two, he has a gun, three, that flight attendant just checked him out. See, he's a commodity, men. Like, I love that they have to put all that in for like maybe the men at home that are like, "Mm, why should I believe this guy that isn't jacked up like Arnold Schwarzenegger with his muscles? He has a gun and women want him. Like him, please. And he smokes. Oh, that's one of the things that doesn't hold up too. Oh yeah, all the Indoor smoking. So much indoor smoking. With a pregnant person? There was a time when you could walk into a restaurant and the hostess would ask you, smoking or not. There used to be smoking sections on airplanes. But yeah, smoking indoors and smoking at all in film. Because I feel like we don't do this. I wrote down the whole speech that Bruce Willis has. That's the big moment for him. So I, I want to touch on this with the modern lens too because it just feels so I love that important that a man is saying I'm sorry. So he's talking to Al over the CB because he thinks he might die. He might not make it. He's just lost the only leverage he had over the terrorists, which was these detonators. And so he is in the bathroom. The lights have gone out. And now it's, you know, like auxiliary lighting is on now. His feet are totally cut up. 
by the glass and he is at his lowest he's been shot in the shoulder too right yeah the bullet like grazes his shoulder or something so he's a hot mess he's at his lowest most vulnerable point physically and emotionally and so this is when he says to al who's the perfect person to say this to by the way because al's just such a mensch he's not gonna be a dick about it you know he's not gonna be like you're a man with feelings ha 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 that's dumb don't do that yeah what he says to al is i want you to find my wife and i want you to tell her something Tell her that it took me a while to figure out what a jerk I've been. That when things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive. And I just should have been behind her more. Tell her that she is the best thing to have ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me say I love you a thousand times. She's never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? That's powerful. That's a perfect speech. And someone that is what people would consider so masculine for someone to say that and do that, like apologizing and just being aware of like communication and feelings, like admitting when you're wrong. And it's nice to have a partner who could also do that, you know? So it's like yeah. just lovely. It's lovely to see a man embracing communication. I don't know if I have anything to add to that, but yeah, that's such a powerful moment. And like, again, with the way the script is crafted, like you build up to that. He has been through so much already this crazy night, and he is at odds with his wife. The last time he saw her, they were, you know, sniping at each other and saying cruel things, and he's ready to say sorry. He's where she was at the beginning when we had talked about that scene where she said, I missed you, and he can't say that. He's there now. And that's what I do like about Die Hard 2 is that they're still in a good place in their relationship. So in that moment when he is so vulnerable and he's he's ready to start acknowledging his mistakes, that is also the moment when he finally starts catching up with the bad guys and their plan. He said something about the man upstairs and then he goes, what was Hans doing up on the roof when I saw him up there? What is going on up there? What's Hans up to? And that's like a turning point in the in the plot. Are you saying that being vulnerable and communicating your feelings is a superpower, Sarah? Is that what you're saying? I am, Sarah. I am. That it might help you think more clearly. OMG. <laughs> but it is. And that he wins after doing that? That is a huge turning point. And that's when he says, Al, you're not going to hear from me for a while. I got to do something. I got to check something out. That is like the beginning of the last segment of the film. And I will say one of the reasons he's able to be vulnerable is because of Al and the way Al handles things and responds to things, right? Because Al is vulnerable about himself. He shares something very personal with Bruce Willis um, about, you know, how he's a desk jockey because he had shot a 13-year-old who he thought had a gun mistakenly and how that has haunted him. And um, he just doesn't know how to deal with like the grief and pain of that and, and getting over that huge mistake. Um, so I feel like because Al is so vulnerable, he's like, oh, oh, I can do that too. It's like seeing that example almost of like, oh, I guess that man could share his feelings. I guess I can too. And on top of that, you know, he's been putting up with the LAPD and their bullshit and the FBI and their bullshit and, like, you know, butting heads with everyone and just like, you know, failing at every turn to get ahead of the terrorists. And Al tells him, hey, man, I love you. All the guys down here love you. We're on your side. We are rooting for you. Like, go get him, Tiger. He has support, like an emotional support system, which is what everybody needs. No man is an island. Yeah. Love that. And that all tied in with the modern lens. Some other things I noticed that we have talked about was like the treatment of Al by his superior, um, likely based on race. 
Yeah. I didn't love Argyle drinking and driving. Wasn't really cool with that. <laughs> that he's like getting drunk in the back of the limo and then he was going to drive somebody home. I don't love the line that Al has towards the end where he's talking to Holly and he's like, you've got a good man here. Treat him right. I wish he had said something to Bruce Willis as well. Like, I wish it wasn't her responsibility to treat him right. Like, I want that line erased. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, we mentioned toxic masculinity throughout, Ellis being awful, Ellis doing coke and hitting on her in the workplace, and that being seen as a fine thing to do. Um, He gets caught doing coke by his boss, and he, like, doesn't care. I know. I kind of got the impression that Takagi was just like, oh, that's our Ellis. (laughs) Always doing coke in the corner office. Also, Holly has a corner office. Hey, girl. Way to get it. Yes. But yes, women's roles in the film was something I wrote of like the fact that like we would be watching this and being like, wow, how special she is to be a boss. And I wish that we didn't have to think that. I wish just like that more women were bosses and were allowed to be. I wondered if this film passed the Bechdel test. And I think it does by literally a single line of dialogue. It's the part where Holly tells her admin, Jenny, to go to the party. And Jenny says, do you think the baby can handle champagne? And and Holly goes that baby's ready to 10 bar. Like that is the only section where two women with names are talking about something other than a man. Cause like, I think Holly and Ginny are the only two women who interact. And for the rest of the film, they're talking about the terrorists or McLean. but Hey, I'll take it. They also have um, the female news anchor who's clearly smarter than her male counterpart. And then um, Betty Spaghetti, whose actress name, I cannot remember, I'm sorry, but she does great at her job, even though her job is to help Richard. And then Paulina too, but that's it. Those are the women and they don't really talk to other women ever. So Betty Spaghetti, I think is Tracy Reiner. I think that's her name. And okay, so Paulina, Paulina is Spanish speaking. She, she looks like she's Hispanic or Latina, but that actress is Italian. So unfortunately that is not an, an instance of a Hispanic actress playing a Hispanic character, which is not great. Thank you for pointing that out. But I am glad that they do touch on how cruel it is, like what Richard is doing. Like when he's like, oh, I will contact INS, that he's the bad guy. That it's not like she's in, like she's the bad guy for being potentially an undocumented immigrant in this country. It's like he's the dick. Well, he's a dick. So we are now, I can't believe it, but we're at the double feature portion of this show. We're here. So if you liked this movie, obviously there are more diehards. I can only recommend Die Hard 2 and Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is Die Hard 3. I think Die Hard 3 is better than Die Hard 2, but people at home, you'll be sad to know Die Hard 3 because it was not based on an original Die Hard script. It was based on another script called Simon Says. I don't know. Spoiler alert. John is separated from his wife with the hope that maybe they could get together at the end. So I don't love it that they're not together in that, but it's a great movie. And then this movie sparked a craze of like, where can we put Die Hard? Like this worked so well. Where can we put like a lone man who might be slightly vulnerable into other situations where he has to use the things around him and improvise to make this movie work. So they've come up with diehards everywhere. I think you could watch this with a diehard-esque film. My favorite of the fake diehards is Speed, AKA Die Hard on a Bus. Can't go wrong with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. 100%. So that'd be my other diehard version, but there are so many. Um, And then weirdly enough, I feel like Home Alone is like little kid diehard. So I feel like that would be a good Christmas double feature. The McAllister's house is Nakatomi Plaza. (laughs) Exactly. That would be more of a yippee-ki-yay kids versus yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. And then in general, I love The Fugitive, as Sarah knows. (laughs) That's like weirdly my airplane movie that I watch. I don't know why. Uh, But yeah, The Fugitive from 1993, Harrison Ford. The script was written 
by the same guy. The Fugitive was written by Jeb Stewart. Um, it feels very wintry, so it would pair well with this. You know, you've got your Christmas movie, you've got your wintry action film that's a love story at its heart where this man has to use his wits and improvise. So I think that would be a great double feature. And then if you want stupid action, like hardcore stupid action with a very famous cast, Con Air is another diehard. Diehard on a plane with prisoners. Um, it's over the top and just silly. It's silly, people at home. You can't make it through with a straight face. It's ridiculous. My idea was The Fugitive. I also love The Fugitive. It's just another action film that is so intelligently done, well-written, compelling from beginning to end. And entertaining, you had mentioned earlier, because sometimes, personally in the past, with action films, I've struggled with being bored because it's not about people or story. It's about explosion fights! And while those can be entertaining and interesting, I'm a, I'm a plot and feelings person. I need, I need to know your motivation. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, need, I need to be invested. I mean, that's why The Fugitive and Die Hard are among the best action movies ever made, because you really care about these characters thrust into these impossible situations. Well, Sarah, I'm so proud of us. We did it. Thank you, audience at home, for listening. It's our season finale episode of season four. Um, happy holidays out there. Be safe. And Sarah, do you want to add anything before we go? Uh, yippee ki motherfucker. Welcome to the party, pal. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Sarah Royce. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.